feel free to take over. Fight through the bureaucracy of the Department of Medical Records and listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about films that no one else wants to talk about. This is episode 102, and my name is Randy. My name is Jakob, and this feels weird. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a first for the show. I, I believe I'm correct in saying it's a. It is. It's it's an honor. Um, so yeah, we've changed things up a little bit here with my. Myself doing the intro. Um, also, Nicolo, Nicolo can't be here with us today, so he's he's busy. We're here by ourselves. But uh, Nicolo, we hope you're having a good evening, and we hope you check in on this later. This this seems like a film that should be uh, up Nicolo's alley. But anyway, quickly, Happy New Year, Jakob. How were your holidays? Oh, my holidays were amazing. Two weeks off I had. I haven't had two weeks off in a while. <laughs> I needed this. I needed this. I spent a lot of it in the kitchen. But this is where I, you know, this is where I unwind because I like cooking. Anyway, nice. So, how was your one? Nice. How was your break? Good. Same. I had a couple of weeks off. You know, I was busy with, uh, you know, family things and, uh, you know, all kinds of little <laughs> events here and there. But it was good. It was a change of scenery from work, and yeah, it was it was a nice, relaxing, mostly relaxing period. And a happy new year to all of our listeners. We hope you have a great. 2023. So just by way of getting started, um, if you've been listening to us the last few weeks, we have uh, dropped the uh, our ideas and our plans for what's going to unfold, but we'll do it just quickly again here. So I guess we're, what we're trying to do in 2023 is be a little bit more organized and structured with our, our use of, of themes. So what we're going to go ahead with is the idea of monthly themes. So every month, all year, we are going to have three or four episodes each month, which uh, orbit a certain theme. So for instance, January this month, the theme that our programming is going to follow is space westerns. So we're going to be doing Outland, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, and Space Rage. Um, But also, in addition, the first episode of each month, uh, we are working on what we'll call a Steven Soderbergh project. So the first episode of each month, we're doing what we're calling a Steven Soderbergh deep cut, where we dive into one or two of his lesser known or forgotten films from his filmography. And the man has, what do we say, 30 films or something? So we're going to try to get to them. It's a lot. (laughs) So today, what brings us here is his 1991 uh, follow-up film, his second film, Kafka. But we'll get into that in a second. On Patreon, uh, next week, we will be launching sort of the other side of our... Oh, uh, this week. It's already out. Come on. Is it? No. Yeah, it is. It is out. It's Friday, and then, you know... Because we're recording this on Monday. Like, oh, 
Yeah, okay. So I thought it was the release next week. Sex Nice okay. It's going to drop on Wednesday. Like I'm, I'm making this happen. It may not be the first thing in the morning, but it's going to drop on Wednesday. <laughs> okay. So, folks, tune into her Patreon and uh, check it out because uh, what we're doing on our Patreon channel is we are still planning to do three episodes a month on Patreon. And one of them will be what we're calling a Steven Soderbergh shallow cut. So that's where we're talking about one of Steven Soderbergh's more beloved uh, entries and films, so more popular films. So uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape is the debut of that series, and that is going to be out now, because if you're listening to this on day of release, it's Friday, and Sex, Lies, then, will be out there. So check us out. That's www.patreon.com forward slash uncut gems pod. Um, also, each month we are planning to do a tie-in to our monthly theme. So the Space Western tie-in is going to be High Noon, 1952's classic Western, High Noon. Um, and also on Patreon, if you were following us on Patreon last year, you heard us get into every single David Lynch film and each season of Twin Peaks. So we finished the David Lynch marathon, and now we're starting a brand new marathon where we are going to each month cover the directorial efforts of one John Cassavetes. And we'll be doing those in order. So later this month on our Patreon, you will find us chatting about shadows. All right. Um, you'll find our main show. You probably already have found it, but we're where you get your anywhere where you get your podcast. So Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, online. Check in at our HQ. Our online headquarters is www.uncutgemspodcast.com. You can find us on most social media platforms at Uncut, at Uncut Gems Pod. If you're thinking of joining us on Patreon, this would be a great month to do it. So if you head on over to Uncut Gems, sorry, uh, over to patreon.com forward slash Uncut Gems Pod for $3 a month. Or 450 Canadian a month. Not only will you tap into uh, three episodes per month, but we've got a backlog of about 40 episodes, I'll say now, close to it. Um, but if you sign up during the month of January, correct me if I'm wrong on any of these details, uh, Yakub, but you will receive an Uncut Gems promotional mug. We'll mail that to yes. you. So just sign up, send us your address. And uh, as an, a, a token of our appreciation, you're, you're going to get a gift. Um, all right, but if you want to leave a gift, um, but you don't want to sign up for sort of a, an ongoing monthly commitment, I totally get it. You can give us a gift, uh, buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com forward slash uncut gems pod. Every little bit helps. We're just an indie production. So any donation helps us push our voices out further into the film community. Um, if you want to support us without a financial commitment at all, totally get it. We're in the middle of, you know, crises in terms of uh, cost of living. No worries. You can join the conversation. Just reach out and share your thoughts with us on our episodes. Or alternatively, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and you write a quick review, great. That's much appreciated and also helps us get our voices out into the film community. So I think that's it for announcements. Jakob, is there ooh, anything ooh. else on yours? Yes. One okay. quick reminder, because... Um, <clears throat> Uh, our current patrons have uh, hopefully by now hopefully have received their their mugs <laughs> however some um i've i've reached out to to our patrons via via email and message on patreon so some of them haven't really replied so if you're listening and you haven't re, re replied 
uh, or you or it's gone in some I don't know some some weird email check your spam I don't know uh, if you're one of those that haven't really been contact, uh, contacted by us feel free to reach out either via Twitter or however else on social media or just just write write us an email so that we get in touch and, and you know because some of, some of our patrons haven't really uh, <clears throat> uh, be, been well they haven't replied to my emails so if you're one of those there's probably one or two yeah get in touch and you get your mug so that's that's all I wanted to say but you know and in terms of just these these mugs for for future patrons just it, it is gonna happen it's just like if you if you sign up it may not be immediate because these mugs will have to be ordered first so you know just saying so, you know, we're not a, we're, we're not a business <laughs> this, this is this is this is an indie venture like you have to just you know cut us some slack in here <laughs> But we really appreciate any and all support. So, you know, thank you to all of you Patreons out there and everyone who listens to spend some time listening to our episodes. It means a lot to us. So without any further ado, uh, let's begin our Steven Soderbergh experiment. Today, we are doing the first Steven Soderbergh deep cut episode. We are talking about his second feature film, 1991's Kafka. 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 Is that uh, your real name? Well, why shouldn't it be? There are people watching. This has been open. Oh. Shall I reseal it? I understand you fancy yourself as a writer. You should find a more athletic hobby. Ah! Okay, so Kafka, directed by our man Steven Soderbergh, was uh, written by Lem Dobbs. That's a name that over the course of this year, as we talk about Soderbergh's career, we'll be coming across Lem Dobbs quite a bit. I think he has written a few of his films. I think Haywire is the only one that comes to mind, but I, I think that he has written several of them. Kafka stars Jeremy Irons um, as he's the main character and his name, his character's name is Kafka. Interesting. It also stars Teresa Russell. Joel Gray, Ian Holm, Yaron Crabb, Armin Mueller-Stahl, Alec Guinness, and Simon McBurney, and a number of other people. And as the story goes, uh, this, this one's not going to be easy in terms of what it's about. Yeah, but on the tell, w- me, tell me what yeah. it's all about, because I have, I have <laughs> questions. <laughs> in terms of trying to keep this blurb brief, to summarize, on the one hand, it's the story of an insurance company employee named Kafka, that's Irons, who is looking for his buddy who's gone missing, and he ends up going down a rabbit hole of sorts of bureaucracy and corruption of authority figures, and he ends up fighting authority within a resistance. There's some spies in there as well. Yeah. So, but on the other hand, on the other hand, without really even following major biographical events, the film Kafka is trying to tell the story, the, the life of Franz Kafka. Irons plays the character named Kafka, as I mentioned. Everything that happens to him seems to reflect understood elements of 
Franz Kafka's own life. So, you know, there are references to his in, in insecure relationships with women, his um, insecure relationship with his father. So there's all kinds of things that we're going to get into it where we get glimpses at his dreams, his imagination, and, you know, the, the muses, I guess, are these ideas that would turn into Franz Kafka's uh, literary works. Um, but I'll leave it at that for now. That's what we have here, sort of a twofold conversation about Franz Kafka. Um, all right. The film, and I, in terms of behind the scenes notes, I don't really have too much for production notes either. It's Soderbergh's second film. So following the success of, uh, uh, the huge success of Sex, Lies, and Videotape, uh, Soderbergh was able to secure a, a, you know, a bigger, healthier, but still relatively low scale budget. It's, it was an $11 million budget, certainly something that was still indie. Um, but, you know, it's sizable for what this is. We'll probably get into it. Um, Soderbergh didn't really want to be painted into a corner. So uh, he definitely wanted to do something different from Sex Lives and Videotape. Um, check that box, I guess, because it certainly was. He also liked the idea of doing a project in Europe. Um, so anyway, I guess... And he still wanted to stay in the, the indie realm because, you know, the Sex, Lies, and Videotape experience was so good. I don't have too much more information on that except this was written by Lem Dobbs. It was, uh, the, the film is set in Prague. It was also shot in Prague. And as a, as a bit of an interesting side piece, around 2000, somewhere between 2006 and 2010, I'm going to say, the rights of this film of Kafka reverted to the producers and the original <laughs> financiers. Um, and they got in touch with Steven Soderbergh and they said, you know how no one liked your second film and no one really understood it and everyone had issues with it. And Soderbergh's like, yes, <laughs> I do recall. <laughs> I, and I, have those issues. I have issues as well. <laughs> I said, how would you like to revisit that and re-edit it and just sort of go through it again and uh, improve it however you see fit. And Soderbergh said, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd like to do that. But it was on the back burner for him for quite a while. So um, when he shot side effects, he shot a bit of extra footage from what I understand. And then during the pandemic, he ended up cutting out 20 minutes, re-editing, shuffling things, making some adjustments to use of color, use of subtitles and sound. Um, and presumably some of this extra footage that he shot ends up in there as well. And he released it, released it at TIFF in 2021, uh, under it. no under a new title called mr neff k-n-e-f-f so and I, yeah i didn't really even know about it like i i did tiff online that year and i didn't really know about this it was you know soderberg was was at the festival and someone pooped to bed yeah so anyway i wonder if uh alina <laughs> actually knows more about that <laughs> but but anyway that's a side piece i we didn't watch just to be clear Jakob and i did not watch uh the Mr. Neff 2021 no, release. The original. So this watched. is the original. Um, in terms of the release, the film was a bomb at the box office. It made just $1 million on its $11 million uh, investment. And my recollection too, was that it was a non-presence in the, the video market. Like there was one copy at my local blockbuster. There was one copy of VHS copy that was in the foreign section and it was just always available. Uh, and what the like, why? 
When it came out, critics were split on it, but mostly negative. Um, there was a lot of love for the visuals, the filmmaking, even some of the performances. But ultimately, no one really cared. Soderbergh also had some issues with it too. On Letterboxd, it's got a you know it's got a decent three point three out of five for whatever that's worth. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at fifty percent on its tomato meter, um, and a very ho hum seventy two percent audience score. Um, Reading some quotes on this, Vincent Canby of New York Times had a really good quote. So I'll throw it in here. Uh, he said, Kafka is a very bad, well-directed movie. So I think that was sort of a good quote to drop in at this point. Um, it's a very difficult film to track down anywhere. Um, and honestly, it's a film that truly seems to have been forgotten. So... Which is why we're here. That's <laughs> all I've got to say about it. So that is why we're here. Um, Jakob, tell me, what did you think of going through Kafka? Oh, <laughs> you know, as if we have, I have to contextualize this because we just spent nearly two hours, just about two hours talking about sex, lies, and videotape. And that was just a festival of, <laughs> of just platitudes. <laughs> uh, look at that. that great movie making. Look at this. Um, and then you follow it, and I actually watched these back to back. As in, like I, I rewatched Sex Eyes and Videotape, and then I immediately just took a bathroom break and I watched Kafka. Well what done. a different experience <laughs> this was! <laughs> so, Absolutely. I think the the quote you used from uh, one critic of the time was just, "This is a very bad, well directed movie." Kind of summarizes this movie quite well. Like you know, you know that you know, like some people are paid good money for for critiquing movies, and then they actually they know what they're talking about. Um, because that's kind of how how I feel as well. As in, like th- this, the the quote basically sort of like that. Yes, that's exactly how I feel. It's like it couldn't it couldn't potentially just dress it to in in words that well. But that's kind of how how I feel. This is a movie that I just feel like I had such a pro- such a massive problem watching because it's boring as hell. Mm-hmm. Like I'll tell you that much. Like just there is a moment when it comes into its own towards the end when uh, Jeremy Irons infiltrates the castle, because I kind of have to say that, you know, like this movie, as you said, it's kind of just a bit of an amalgamation of the trial uh, and the castle. And these are the two books I read of his when, when I was very, very young and I was still in high school. So I read both of these. I didn't read America. (laughs) So they're kind of sort of, so I don't. So I don't know whether there's any America incorporated into this, but I, I can I can see that yeah, there's yeah, there's the castle and there's <clears throat> there's the trial and there's a, f- a few sort of hints and nods towards the uh, metamorphosis, which I think is the, the Kafka's most well-known short story about a guy turning into a cockroach in his in his apartment. And I feel like the the conversation about this film may be more interesting than the film itself. Because I think that the uh, the ancillaries, the tangentials surrounding the film, as in like how it relates to Kafka, how it relates to again, this will be the twenty twenty three bingo card item, Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I actually did manage to mm-hmm. watch the trial, Orson Welles' nineteen sixty two trial. All right, and um, that's the one I'm jealous of. I saw that years ago, and I really liked it. I really appreciated it, and I can't find it anywhere now. It's, Whereas, uh, I have carnal knowledge. We were talking about this on well, sex lies. So you each. can't get it yet. We're one each. 
but you know, it. I I feel like this this is it. This is this movie is essentially a a bit of a love letter to, um, to Orson Welles and potentially Terry Gilliam, I suppose, right? Because mm-hmm. um, you could imagine. I mean, you could say, oh, it's it's kind of like Brazil. I mean, I I did watch like twenty minutes of Brazil just before just before we started this because <laughs> I, I it's it's a blind spot. But then again, like you watch Brazil and just like this is like most of Terry Gilliam's shit. <laughs> because <laughs> Terry Gilliam has just one gear which is just this uh, anyway uh, so Kafka is a very strange experience because I look at it I'm, I'm not invested in it at all until I am briefly and I watch it sort of immediately just slip into this sort of like an almost like an academic mode of operation where I just in just enjoy the shadows the expressionist cinematography or the the ideas that this movie was made in 1991 but it looks like it was made in 1927 occasionally like especially in the sort of the first sort of third of the film you can feel like this is an early talkie mm-hmm. like it's just very weirdly put together and i feel like this is this is how this is on purpose. Like this is this is this is f- for for my money. This is Steven Soderbergh's being experimental and trying and, and trying to kind of just reinvent the form a little bit, which again, bingo item for this year. He he kind of just just steps into the shoes of Orson Welles and tries to kind of do push push the boundaries of what the cinematic form can do. Perhaps at his own peril. So I'm gonna leave it there. Uh, I gave uh, this on Letterbox a straight up two and a half out of five because it's kind of just like I, like I don't hate it, I don't like it, I don't enjoy it one bit watching it. I enjoy aspects of it, but I, 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 I'll be honest with you, I don't think I, I want to watch this movie ever again. If that makes any sense, or maybe maybe at some point when I have an excuse of this time, maybe I'll write an article about Stephen Soderbergh or like Franz Kafka or whatever, because why not? Then I'll rewatch it, but I feel like it's uh, it ain't the best, Chief. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna leave it there. And then uh, over. Yeah, uh, fair enough. I think we're going to be a bit of an echo chamber here. I did see this back in the early '90s. I did see that one VHS copy that was at my Blockbuster. I rented it, so it did get rented at least once. Uh, I didn't. Re- I didn't <laughs> like the it one then. Time <laughs> I didn't like it then. Uh, I watched it last week. Still, you know, didn't like it. Didn't understand really anything that was going on. Then a few days later, I decided, you know what? I, because I haven't read Franz Kafka, so he blank slate. So I dug into you watched you know, it that. again. Well, I'll, I'll get to that. But first, Masochist I, alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, but I, I dug into Franz Kafka's Wikipedia page, and that helped a lot. A lot yeah, fell does, into yeah. place, yeah. Um, so I, I mentioned during our chat on Sex, Lies, and Videotape that it's got a, a, a great uh, commentary on there where Soderbergh is, is talking with Mila Butte. And Soderbergh mentions that he went to Brazil when it came out and saw it like in theaters like 10 or a dozen times or something. So I thought, oh, okay, I should go watch Brazil because I have a copy of Brazil, but I've never watched it or... I uh, don't remember if I had. So How many times I watched did you go that. And see Brazil? Oh, he said like 10 or 12. Like what a poser. Huge, huge fan. <laughs> huge fan of He's Brazil. He's one of those. I'm a big yeah. fan of this movie. I just saw it 12 <laughs> times in the cinema. What a dick. <laughs> 
So anyway, once I saw Brazil, I'm like, oh, okay, this this is helping a lot. So, uh, but anyway, but a lot of Kafka from what I watched last week had gone right through me. So I'm like, now I'm forgetting everything that I've watched, even though I feel I've I've got a sense of what Soderbergh's after now. Uh, so I did rewatch it. So masochist alert yeah so i did watch it again i did make vigorous notes and yeah now i have a bit of an appreciation for it i still don't like it um the way i view this is let's say a teacher says okay you have to do like a book report on franz kafka you know so my wife she's an english teacher and she will like for the shakespeare parts of her uh for her courses, she will tell the students, okay, go do something. You have to do a project, has to be creative, um, and has to be about Shakespeare and whatever play we're doing, Macbeth or whatever. And so they will go off and they'll, you know, do news reports and, you know, record videos or they'll do skits or they'll make board games. But whatever they have to produce has to reflect a really good understanding of Shakespeare, the times, and whatever play they're doing. I think that's what was on Soderbergh's mind. This is book report on Franz Kafka. This is my book report. And he's like, oh, teacher, instead of a book report, can I go make a movie? Yes. Oh, he's one of sure. those kids. He's yeah. one of those kids. <laughs> go ahead, Everyone's Steven. Everyone's doing a book report, but yeah. no, this guy's written a song. No. <laughs> what, a, what a hero. <laughs> and that's what this is. That's how I take it. And as such, great job. You know, this is really, really good stuff. But like, like you said, this is not fun to watch. This is a documentary, really. But no one watching knows that it's a documentary. It's like just this weird, surrealist drama that we're in the middle of. There's too many characters. There's this weird plot about, I'll call them zombies, but they're, I think they're I tampered with humans. In notes, okay. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> There's human, the human experimentation or something. And it's like, what <laughs> is all this? Um, there's nothing to latch on to here in terms of narrative thrust. There's nothing to latch on to. If this were a documentary about Kafka's life, it, it, it just, it just, it doesn't land with me. Like it's gorgeous. And yes, there's good performances, but it's not accessible. Um, you know, the stakes by the time we have um, something sort of interesting going on, I think we're probably, we'll, we'll find out momentarily, but we're probably alluding to some of the same moments there that, oh, okay, this is sort of engaging. And what is going on here? This is, this has me hooked a little bit. Um, the, the stakes aren't there for me to care too much about, you know, bombs and chases and revolutionaries or whatever. It's just a really weird project as a study and a book report on Franz Kafka. I think it's fantastic, but in terms of something that, you know, with a narrative or something that I can follow, this just mostly has me lost. So I feel that we're sort of on the same page. Um, I can't believe you're going to make me defend this movie. <laughs> no, Oh, because this is exactly what I'm going to do. Jesus Christ. Oh, no. Yeah. I know it's really sort of a hateful experience, but, you know, I I do have an appreciation for it. Um, No one really seemed to have much, you know, amongst critics and definitely audiences. Uh, Let's just, we often start... Well, why don't people get this? Why? Why isn't? Why aren't people like, just appreciating just see this? It. Like, yeah. Look, it's right there. But why I don't guess people I'll, get that's exactly I'll, why. Have you seen I'll start, it? I'll start there. <laughs> I'll start there, and yeah, let's try to 
articulate that and let's not let's not just stick with oh it's so it's so boring and you know like what i was saying oh it doesn't connect it doesn't land let's dig into that and try to articulate that and i think you go this, you go first this is a good springboard to kind of just think about because you know why don't people get it like well why didn't people get it the way I suppose Soderbergh saw it. Or is there something that Soderbergh saw in this material that didn't re-translate well to the screen? Or which one of these questions is more sort of pertinent here? I don't know. I have a feeling that there is just a mixture of all of them. It's 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 impossible to like this movie. I'll put it that, put it that way. Like if there is someone who tells you like Kafka is my favorite film, you should probably just call the cops like this because you know there might be a. I don't deserve a double take. <laughs> or, is there maybe or, a sociopath on the loose. Or, or a hell of a compelling essay. <laughs> Although, <clears throat> having watched Orson Welles' The Trial uh, kind of just unlocks a little bit for me because it kind of tells you, at least aesthetically, what, what, was, what Soderbergh was trying to achieve. And then also... I mean, I'm, I suppose we're going to touch on this later, so I don't want to derail this immediately. I'm going to answer your question. <laughs> so for me, this this question invites this sort of springboard of... Okay. The film's called Kafka. It's not called The Trial, or as I like to... I, I feel I feel the word trial, by the way, because it's it's kind of just partially sort of inspired by the trial. There, there are elements of the trial in there, and there's elements of the castle, right? But... Um, in, in the story and for those who don't know the trial is, is a story about a guy who kind of sort of wakes up in just in in the middle of just being prosecuted for a crime he doesn't know he committed and he's just just swallowed by um this sort of the bureaucracy of what's happening to him um, without explanation like without explanation it's like people he's in just, the dark right totally. yes yeah, so just people come to his house. I mean, the, the, well, the, a, a room that he rents, and then he he gets ar- arrested and interrogated, and he asks, "Well, am I am I charged? Like, oh, it's not for me to explain. Like, you know, like the, you know, is there a case against me? Well, you'll find out at the station. Like, well, so for me, the the word more better reflects at least these elements is not the word trial, is the the element the the word in German or in Polish as well is the same." Is der Prozess, which is exact translates to the trial as in a criminal trial in the court of law, where you try to f- try a case to find out the truth, but in in the German language, der Prozess is also translates to process, mm-hmm. as in, and I think this word reflects more of what's happening because it's it's not about finding out what's happening; it's about the process about being, you know, like the idea of being part of something that you don't like. It's complicated. It it's out of your hands, and you're kind of just swallowed into it, and just you have to just you're trying to kind of just find your bearings. And so, <clears throat> so there are elements of these things. And if you if, if you look at Kafka's uh, life, and then real, you might realize that the biggest mistake of this movie is. Not every person in the world deserves a biopic, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at Franz Kafka's life, he he didn't have well. There is a nuance in this film that actually this this film actually gets I think I don't want to say correctly, but it's the, it's the, it's the interesting part of it. But for the most part, Franz Kafka's life was boring. He didn't live a long life. He died at the age of 40 of tuberculosis, 
right? So, <coughs> and he was clinically marred by self-doubt. Mm-hmm. I don't think he, I think he published only just a few collect, small collections of his short stories. None of his, none of his, neither of his novels were were published by the, by the time he, uh, he, he passed away, let alone finished. Like they, they were all unfinished. They mm-hmm. were finished by other people. And then uh, there's a line in the film um, when Franz Kafka infiltrates the castle and he tells us the, the guy he meets, which will be the stand-in for his real-life friend. Yeah. Well, if I don't come back alive, can you go to my house and burn all my shit? Because I don't want people to read the stuff that I wrote, right? Which is what happened, right? Which like, is what, what happened. He yeah. told him his yeah. friend explicitly, <laughs> just can Get you please burn my... my manuscripts? Yeah, so he, so he was kind of like the sort of the literary Van Gogh in, in a way that he didn't find fame during his lifetime. He... His works were appreciated long after he'd gone. Actually, he, you'd have to wait until after World War II before his works started to be appreciated. And then if you think about... So his life is interesting through through that lens. But if you look at it, actually his life, not much happens in it. He was a, he was a clerk. He was an insurance salesman. He was a man. He, he was a bureaucrat, for lack of a better word. Who mm-hmm. I suppose this film's trying to tap into the fact that his because if you want to be a writer, you either have to have a great life experiences or a great imagination, right? So he didn't have great life life experiences that he could just translate to the page and just write about adventures and whatever the hell he was was happening to him or I don't know his relationships with women or whatever. <clears throat> he he would write about stuff that you know he and weirdly enough he would always write about himself because I feel like uh, Joseph K so Joseph K in the trial or the main protagonist I think it's also Joseph K in the castle I can't remember now so he they're all always uh, all, all, like almost sort of he puts himself in his books he puts himself in his material and then I think this film kind of reflects that and it's just the, the sort of the problem is that the film straddles the line between the sort of the reality of Kafka's life and the fantasy of what he thinks of what he wishes could happen is just half of it is boring as hell. So I, I suppose this yeah. is this is it. This is what people didn't get because it's just a biopic has to have this hook. Like you have to have this sort of personhood. If it has to function as a biopic, the person has to be compelling. And Franz Kafka as a person is the antithesis of a compelling subject. Yeah, except to say that in any, if you're a storyteller, you know, you will, you'll hear the adage that, okay, write what you know, and, you know, make it personal. And I I think that he did go through a lot of uh, torment. So this is just, you know, me and my Wikipedia uh, digging into it. But I I think that he had uh, major self-confidence issues and issues with his fathers and I think uh, with his father, and he was always under the thumb of his, of his dad. Like he, he wrote this epic letter saying how he wasn't worthy to his father and then he didn't have the balls to give deliver it to his dad himself he, he asked his mom can you deliver this to my dad so like he i think he was just constantly he felt like he was you know oppressed by various authorities um you know within family and i, I think that's even what metamorphosis is about too is it is it not like he fe- he feels like a bug you know, mm-hmm. he turns into a bug, like he feels insignificant. And, you know, so I think that it's 
it's it's absolutely impossible to have any type of appreciation for this film Kafka without having a bit of an understanding of of Kafka's life. Like I, honestly, I think the the best way to put it, it's a bit of a book report on him. And you're right, what this film tries to do is to delve into his life a bit. Um, but you're right. He didn't really do anything. And then the other element is his imagination and and also his ideas that that did resonate years later and where you know did make him sort of a, a literary figure, like decades after his his own death. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting in in this in this type of setup, but I feel that there's no real way to appreciate it without looking at, you know. Kafka's uh, uh, Wikipedia page first. Like it's just sort of a, a bizarre entry in, in in anyone's filmography. I mean, you kind of have to almost uh, uh, resign yourself to thinking that you're going to have to find compelling material in something that's superficially excru- excruciatingly boring. Because if you look at the guy's life, I, a it's not very long. B it's not necessarily. Um, adventurous because he just lived worked and died and then the sort of the interesting bits of his of his biography are the sort of the nuances of psychological psychodrama of his life of mm. as you say so the <clears throat> having to deal with a domineering father and then basically how this sort of precipitates whole like uh, just casts this sort of shadow upon his entire life as he's you know he's he's just a mid-level clerk somewhere in uh, some kind of a company somewhere. I mean, he was, uh, and also he would be. He would have been a little bit too old to fight in World War One. So he wouldn't be someone who, like he, he, he like you could feel how how his life is insignificant, you know. And I suppose this is where how it translates to it, his written work, where there the sort of the themes of oppression or. Uh, or an like insignificance of a unit of of just a person, or in um, in the sort of in contrast to the sort of the the uh, the sort of bureaucratic automaton, mm-hmm. the sort of the big machinery, the big obelisk of something that you can, the immovable object of bureaucracy is a reflection of how he must have felt as a person. Like he felt insignificant and meek and small. Uh, and I suppose the film's trying to kind of get at this a little bit because as a as a coping mechanism, he would be going and inventing uh, these conspiracies to kind of just, you know, like this wish fulfillment, fulfillment fantasies of what if, what if there is something going on in this castle? You know, maybe they're doing something to people. There is there are these zombies that are just chasing me. It's all in his head, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. right? But then he feels like if there is something happening, maybe I'm the key. And I have to go and investigate. And he's this is the sort of the writer Kafka going in and investigates. And I'm pretty sure he just sits there on the bench and just imagines this shit. But you know, uh, but but then again, how good a story can you make? out of this is a separate question because you know the, because fair enough like the the man wrote well, i mean you don't know how much he wrote because allegedly 90 percent of what or everything that he's written is gone because he kept burning his own stuff 
Yeah. So it's not like he just had a, a drawer full of stuff and then he was just like, well, can I'm, I, th- I feel like I'm dying because I think he was he, he was suffering from tuberculosis <clears throat> to the point that his throat was seizing up and he couldn't he couldn't feed. Mm-hmm. So he essentially starved to death, which is a terrifying death if you think about it. Like you're there suffering. He was suffering from tuberculosis so much that he couldn't he couldn't swallow food. So, and then because it was 1920. Four, there was no such thing as well we can just give you iv nutrients and keep you alive so you can just do whatever you want Mm -mm. uh so 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 there's that but then uh, he asks his friend oh can you go and burn this stuff for me and just say it wasn't a one-off like this was his this is how he operated he was apparently a very prolific writer that was all he did he just went to work he came back home he ate his dinner and he wrote into the night and just went to went to sleep and rinse repeat. So he wrote probably quite a bit more than mm-hmm. than, yeah. than we have, but we we have three books and probably like twenty or thirty short stories to to yeah. to, to, to speak of. And then when you think about what they're all about, <coughs> they're all, all kind of just centering about this sort of, around this sort of idea of this man just projecting his own insignificance and this and this in the fantasy of trying to to be some even the metamorphosis kind of you can you can you can read it as maybe maybe i'm not just meek maybe if if maybe i am something and even if this something is is a massive ter- terrifying cockroach like like human sized so you know so i, I don't know there's whether there's a film to, to to be made in here is a separate question and then how this kind of comes together at least this film is well I, let's just to put it uh, just i don't know put it bluntly it ain't the best material for a compelling story a, a compelling traditional narrative yeah put it that way Ab- yeah a- absolutely um what do you make of on this note soderbergh's ability to blend what i would call imagination or dream sequence uh into what seems to be like this day-to-day plot because you know there's some uh there's some progression you could say like in in terms of what Soderbergh's doing like you know for god's sake the film starts in black and white and we've got these color moments and, <laughs> and then Dorothy you know, hits her yeah. head and now it's like technicolor <laughs> yeah so it's uh so what do you make of how uh Soderbergh is tying this together oh uh I mean, for the most part, it's seamless, right? I mean, apart from this one jarring moment where, you know, he infiltrates the castle, spoiler alert, and then everything becomes colorful. But only, like, it takes you a moment to realize, this isn't color. Because <laughs> the colors are washed out. Again, it's almost, again, like it's timid, as in on, on purpose, as in, like, Kafka wouldn't wouldn't have wanted this to be jazzy. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't have had the bold entrance through the door. Hello, yeah. I'm here. Like he wouldn't yeah. be just all of a sudden just the road. The, like the, the, it wouldn't be like cries and whispers. There's just like the, the walls are red. No, no, no. This is it's still brown and gray. And then yeah. you, you know, just is this suit slightly bluish? I think it is. I don't. Know. So yeah, how he's going about it is seamless. But then again, I have a feeling it works to the detriment of the film. Because the story ain't compelling on its own, right? And it's actually complicated by the fact that you have no fucking clue what's happening. Like, especially if you haven't read any of his books. And then 
I'm like, I act like I'm just like, ooh, Jacobin is just literary bullshit. Like, no, I'm like, this was 20 years ago I read wrote, read these things and it was just part of like a high school sort of a situation of me preparing for my uh, for my exams, right? <laughs> so just take it with a pinch of salt. Like, this was 20, two decades <laughs> um, ago I read these things. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not remembering too, too many things correctly anyway. So... The story itself ain't very compelling. The character of, of Franz Kafka as well, Jeremy Irons is, is a great actor, but the, but the character as it's written is not exactly the best to follow because you really have to pay attention to things. And all of a sudden, it just there are just things that happen around the character. There's these bombings. There are these zombies in in like in the sort of like the, the side streets of Prague, which by the way it's a great location. Mm-hmm. But but you feel like it doesn't really compel you to investigate the story further or get invested in it. It it almost alienates a bit more. I, I felt more alienated by this, by, by these sort of additions of these weird surreal things that happen or you don't like, oh, just this knife is there. Now it's no longer, what the, what's happening? So, you know, it, oh, yeah, I, I feel like these sort of, uh, like the, the idea of blurring the line between reality and fantasy has to, has to be accompanied by something that actually lets me into this world i want like you know i want to be on the shoulder of dorothy as, as she as she just goes and inspects the world of oz whatever in here or probably the better co- comparison would be it kind of feels like it's a charlie Co- charlie kaufman sort of universe where you don't quite know where the line is because i think it's purposefully blurred right yeah. but i want to investigate because the character i'm following is interesting and not not the case in here so I think that's kind of how I feel about yeah. it. It's seamless, but it's kind of just... Ugh. <laughs> yeah, because I, I had a question here. I was going to say, what is there to latch on to? And like you're saying nothing. And my answer to that would be, it should be on to Kafka, but like the character of Kafka, but it, there isn't. Like what we have in terms of these plot elements, you have you have plot elements that are, you know, sort of forward moving and I, I get it, but it just seems what's present i can't can i can't attach to the stakes that are involved so like a week ago when i watched this um and inevitably in 1992 when i watched this and i'm seeing uh jeremy irons run around and he's looking where's edward where's edward where's edward raban have you seen like it's it's a long time before we make any before we connect that oh the person he's looking for is the person that went missing in the first scene it's really hard to latch on to what these very plot driven moments mean. Like I'm, I'm having a lot of trouble attaching stakes to this. I don't really know what the, the stakes are and that's a struggle throughout, um, you know, and there are some elements which should be interesting. Like the fact that there's a revolution and then there's this attractive lady at the office who's sort of a femme fatale and she's, she's interesting and she's sort of going against the, the, the current here and making waves of in her own right. And uh, she's rebellious and, Oh, she is part of the revolution. There's some, there's stuff here I should be able to connect with. Um, but I don't know where it's going. So th- there's, there's just a, a general, there's an absence of something here that like, what are we building towards? I don't get a sense of the villainy. So the, the plot to me, even though there's elements in it that should work or could work, um, I have no sense of what the big picture is now, whether in part that's thrown off because I've got these maybe bizarre elements. Um, 
But I, I think it's more a matter of that's not the point and you shouldn't even be expecting something normal. So it, I feel a little bit betrayed by this because I'm giving elements that should allow me to just saddle up and ride on a plot, but mm -hmm. there's no, there's no stakes. Um, so that's sort of the issue that, that I, is there anything in here that you can latch on to in any way? Like no. what I found to latch on to was after, was after I read the Wikipedia page. Oh, this is just a representation of Kafka or, you know, his feeling insignificant or his, you know, working, trying to work within or work through this, you know, impenetrable bureaucracy, or this is a reference to the trial. Like it's it just, all it is, is references. Like I say, this is a wonderful poster board, you know, at the literary fair, the heritage fair uh, that, you know, my subject was Kafka. <laughs> And that's, that's, that's what I latch on to. That's what I find interesting. Um, but it, it, following it is, you know, very much a, a lost cause. This is where I start defending this movie. Okay. <laughs> because, okay. The, the big gimmick of what I'm about to say is, the, is that, um, Steven Soderbergh saw this and, uh, and knew this would happen as in like, this movie is going to lose money. People won't get it because I can say, well, these people don't commit. And then the, the biggest sort of, I think one of the biggest sort of character traits you can fish out of like Franz Kafka's biography is the sort of his sort of fear of commitment that like his, his relationships with women are kind of like sort of signifiers of that. And this movie doesn't commit either. So on a, on a meta level, this is a perfect enca encapsulation. It's a perfect mm -hmm. biopic for a man who left, led a boring life because it's a boring film about that doesn't commit to anything fully. So it's impossible <laughs> to invest. Therefore, it's impossible to actually take note of it. It's exactly what Franz Kafka was. was. It's nice. the movie, you know, <laughs> it's the nice. movie that you see in the, on, the, on the shelf in your blockbuster and you go like, who the hell cares? And then 30 years later, people will be just like, look, have you seen this? It's kind of like Brazil. And, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, like, have you seen the 1962 The Trial? You know, it's, uh, and people kind of wa warm up to it. It's exactly what, how people warmed up to Franz Kafka's work in like the 1940s and 50s. <laughs> so <laughs> it had to just, you know, mature on the shelf like a, like, like a fine wine and then people will get it. <laughs> it's still, the, like, I don't, maybe call me a, you know, uh, a, a Philistine, but, you know, I'll, I'll if you gave me like a 30 year old bottle of wine, I'll be just like, ugh, it's still bitter. Jesus. Oof. Uh, I'm, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> okay. It's still just, you know, still, yeah, it's sour. Yeah. Who gives a shit? Anyway, so, you know, what I was trying to say is basically the Soderbergh is that, it, it, I mean, I have another gimmick for later that relates to Orson Welles, but, you know, like for, for now, like if you if you think about he he looks at Franz Kafka and he actually transposes warts and all everything about him into a film, which includes his boring life, his fear of commitment, his insecurities, and his wish fulfillment fantasies, all into one vehicle that's impossible to unpack and enjoy. Because like I read his stuff, some of his stuff at least. I've never met anyone who enjoys his work. Like, I don't think people would just go and say, I really love the trial. Like, try and read it. Like, try. It's not a compelling book. 
it's a book that's interesting. There are elements of mm-hmm. it that will just get your brain to move. It's intellectually challenging. But as a as a novel, you know, people who came later, I suppose, inspired by this, like um, George Orwell. <laughs> Orwell would be one, yeah. Probably. Or yeah. Um, Aldous Huxley. Like, pretty much... Every, the whole dystopian literature of the 50s and 60s and later on like Anthony Burgess and all these like clockwork oranges of it of, of of the later years they kind of probably owe, owe quite a lot to Kafka's work um I mean I suppose there will be Soviet literature and, and uh, oh, they kind of just slept through slip through the cracks uh, of the censorship but then people who would be satirizing the idea of the authoritarian um dictatorship ruling over uh, over the unit the human and then dehumanizing them to a point where they have to just lead these meek lives and then imagine that their lives have some meaning by just thinking that oh there may be there may be a, a, a purpose to it all maybe there's someone dictating these terms and I can maybe uh, maybe I can go and investigate and you go and investigate and you say I can't fix any of this might as well run away because I again I fear commitment, right? So yeah. that's my gimmick that Soderbergh looks at this sort of like this sort of life of Franz Kafka and then just transposes it perfectly into a movie. And this movie is crap because this life was crap, okay? <laughs> and he knew this would happen. It's not like just like you know what people who people don't appreciate in, enough Franz Kafka his life, such a great biopic material. You know, no, no, I, I think he knew perfectly well this is going to happen. <laughs> I think the the piece of what you just said that I can rally behind is I, th- I think that Soderbergh is in 1990. He's he's going out and he's making the film. He's got this idea and he's worked through with uh, Lem Dobbs. And uh, I think he's keen on making a film that is a different form, right? It's like, to me, like I mentioned, it's sort of like a documentary in a way. Like that's that's where I exact value from it is looking at this as, oh, this is all about Kafka. So I can get sort of documentary value out of this, but it sure as hell isn't a documentary, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's plot in here and there's surreal elements and there's a sort of weird progression and, you know, this weird land of Oz business <laughs> later where it breaks into color. Um, I don't really get any value out of that. Like this year is... Dark a- City, by the way. Another film that Lem Double Le- wrote. Yes, and... <laughs> It's interesting. <laughs> the ending is exactly like like a dry <laughs> run from that. It sort of is, right? But uh, and and even visually, so uh, you know, I I wonder how much Lem Dobbs is in here. And Soderbergh's like, oh yeah, that's cool. Like like let me try to do something with that, um, because yeah, the the Dark City thing that was very I mean, interesting. Lem Dobbs's Dark City is essentially still a bit of a wet dream about Franz Kafka's lit, right? Yeah. So it's yep. still the trial. It's still the sort of the castle. Of just like this, there's this world, and these people are just sub, subsisting on. I don't know. They're just subdued by by these sort of weird, ag- special agents. Yeah, um, there's this weird power that's that's in in charge, and it's bigger than anyone else, and you can't access it. And yeah, yeah, like there's there's interesting and there's nothing you can do because you're a here. floating disc in space. Meh. Yeah. Spoiler for Dark City, by the way. <laughs> Which I know you don't care for, but I really like Dark City, actually. Do you know? Jesus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I suppose yeah, you didn't really great. enjoy our conversation uh, with Nicola we had on it, because like, we poo-pooed this movie like really, really uh, properly. Yeah, Nic- Nicola, he wasn't great on it either. I, 
I did take exception to your your opinions on it. <laughs> but I don't think I wrote in with them. But anyway, um, yeah, I sort of like Dark City. I'm in the, the, the pro on that. But with something like Dark City, I feel you have a, a progression and you have a character that you can get behind. And, you know, it's not so, Franz Kafka, you know, right? Well, you know, maybe it's as maybe it's as simple as that. But at the end of the day, it has a protagonist that you can follow that there's, you know, context to what he's doing. And then there's an identifiable arc. And maybe that's all this is. There's no identifiable arc here. You know, whereas, you know, we spent a lot of time last year talking about David Lynch and how, you know, who's the dreamer and sometimes how his realities roll back onto his dreams or vice versa. Um, so you can go plumbing and look for something, but there's nothing like that here. So there's no real traditional way I feel that I can enjoy that. This is a completely unique form for a movie. And is this like in said, an empire of its time? <laughs> yeah yeah i think uh, honestly just, i think it's it's a book report is what it's it is just, it's one of those just well you know how do you know who's the dreamer and who's like you can ask these questions and the answer is who gives a shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah com completely uh it's just that's so. how i feel although i would say on the on this like there's like i really wish you you, you had watched the trial for this mm. uh, orson yeah. Welles' the trial because you can see how soderbergh's actually kind of just reenacting Orson Welles' career only turbocharged because I think if you look at Orson Welles, he made Citizen Kane, he made <coughs> Magnificent Ambersons, and then he moved to Europe. Mm -hmm. He made something else in Hollywood, maybe Othello. And then he moved to Europe. Maybe he did Othello in Europe, in Europe I don't know. Um, and then he comes back to Hollywood to do Touch of Evil. Mm -hmm. And then he comes back to Europe to make this among other things it's lady of shanghai did he direct that he did yeah but he yeah it was probably was that, i was 40 something I what year was yeah okay um 40 something but, but you know that was 46 Hollywood, seven something like that um mm. so it was still i think in hollywood but uh, yeah so uh so he moved to europe to make the franz kafka's the trial adaptation and if you look at the film, it's a little bit more experimental. I mean, there's there are some, yeah. It it kind of looks like it's sort of French New Wave meets uh, Fritz Lang's new noir, right? Yeah, a film and, that. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, I just I just wanted to say that that if you look aesthetically at Kafka, Soderbergh's Kafka, you could see how much he draws aesthetically. Like this, sort of the the chases in these side streets of Prague, they're exactly lifted from. That because the film was shot in Europe. Yeah. I'm not sure where it was shot. It was just like these outskirts of Paris. I don't know where. But possibly because Jean Moreau was in it. So probably maybe maybe it was shot in France. Okay. I don't know. Uh, but um but yeah, the the idea is that aesthetically it kind of looks like it's he's trying to make a Europe like we talked about sex lies and videotape, that it's kind of sort of like has this sort of European sensibility about itself. And then I think suppose I suppose Soderbergh was trying to make a European film, and then equally he wanted to kind of homage his hero, whom I I strongly believe that he was Orson Welles. That he's he was he's trying to in and I think he successfully innovates in this film as well because he makes this movie look like it's made in the twenties, and then he makes it look like it's made in the forties again. I. Mm -hmm. 
admittedly, just because the, uh, the the content is so uninteresting, you just feel like it. Maybe it is just a newsreel from the fifties. Like it feels like it just has a sort of documentary quality about it. That's just a little bit more, um, let's just say, less polished, right? But uh, but if you just look past the content, that just the artifice of it is very much nineteen forties, nineteen thirties, and towards the end nineteen fifties. So it feels yeah. like it's harks back to very specific moments in time on just in its craft. And then if you're just a member of, if you're just average Joe walking into the cinema, like an absolute ding dong, not knowing what you're going, because you're like, I like sex lies in videotape. I'm going to check this out, this new Soderbergh film. You know, you're, you're in for a big surprise <laughs> because oh, yeah. and not a, it's not, not, it's not even one. close, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what but, I would add to this um is the the film that I got a lot of vibes from is the Third Man, mm-hmm. so I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And um, like, there's the a noir lot of moments elements? in here. You mean like the zombies and? Yes, well, in particular, those those types of scenes, the scenes where there, uh, there's a scene where the zombie is is chasing uh, someone down uh, a street in Prague, and that's there's the Rabban guy moment. in the beginning. Uh, no, later on, like this, the scene where they sort oh, of come cool. over the wall or whatever. But yes, early on when uh, the Raban guy is attacked by this zombie thing um, and that's just happening in an alley and the lighting and the shadows, like they're so crisp. That has strong third man vibes to me. So I, th- I think you're right. I think that he is, um, you know, directing his lens to, uh, you know, this certain era and probably Orson Welles. So we'll see how this theory sort of travels through the year with us when we cover these things i like that could very well uh could very well be um Which is an but invitation i think that... for me to go and go and actually correct all my blunt blind spots and so see all, all the orson wells films that yeah. i haven't seen yet maybe anyway. something we'll, we'll work on that in parallel um but i think this speaks to something that we're we're seeing in the generation of filmmakers that's coming out we talked about this on blood simple with the cohen's and we talked about it with the folks that are coming out you know a, f- a couple years after this in the 90s the tarantinos and the rodriguez's like there's a strong film iq i think in steven soderbergh and he knows what he wants and damn it he gets it like this is inaccessible but you know in the same way like nico loved inland empire great it's for him this film and that film wasn't for me either but this film is not for me but i i think that i think there's a nicolo out there who likes it <laughs> or this you know like dude. i <laughs> yeah this is one guy but yeah well i don't know about that but because i think that this is something more the value is almost a documentary type of value as i said like i think you're getting information about kafka it's a it's a book report not to sound like a broken record it's um, a book report so- that you have to actually you like Hold, sorry, sorry. Okay, well, this is me not defending this film. If it's a book report, then why would you want to go and uh, open a Wikipedia article? You should get all the in, all all the book report information from the film. Okay, I'll yeah? I'll clarify that. This is no. more like my my this wife's is a exercise. Shitty book report. They actually have to go this and is, double check. <laughs> this is more like my wife's exercise, where she says to her guys go do something creative, make something that reflects your understanding of Shakespeare, his time and whatever play we're doing. So, and then someone comes back and it's a board game. Um, It's a board game with these sort of um, minutiae from the guy's life. 
it's just so easy to miss. It's just oh, this 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 field's called this and that. It's just oh that because it's this obscure line from Romeo and Juliet, right? And then <laughs> you actually have to go and dig dig the information out to appreciate. I feel like <laughs> this, right because because you can't go and just say like oh this is totally you know this the the the, the rock they use to go and infiltrate the castle it has stuff in Hebrew and they, he was a Jew, so you know that makes sense. You know, this, just this is you could totally yeah. just go and disregard it, and then just like, oh, he was Jewish. I didn't know. But this is to say, I think that this is the whole point of this, and Kafka is not making this for a mass audience. He's sort of making it for himself. He's making it for people who appreciate Kafka, Kafka. or Soderbergh. Oh, Soderbergh. Soderbergh it works this. for both. Because Kafka also wasn't writing for anybody else but himself. He wrote it, he True. read it, and he burned it. <laughs> So that was his mo. Right? So and maybe Soderbergh Soder- Soder- is kind of like that, right? Yeah, sorry. And he's actually sort of burning the original, saying, "Look, yeah, no one liked this. I'm going to redo this and call this Mr. Knaff." What if uh, <laughs> Lem- what if Lem Dobbs saw him just you know, going full on Nanook of the North, just looking at this sort of with a cigarette in his mouth, looking at the film stock, and he's just like, "No, you're going to burn it all. That was my plan, okay, Lem." Yeah. And then just <laughs> Lem just like just took all the copies that he could find and just. Uh, release it himself and Steven Sorrow was like damn you I wanted to burn this <laughs> I, this I doubt would, it this would I, have been the perfect like Kafka take. biopic as in like a film that he he wrote he directed he <laughs> and edited put it together and he ruined it and he destroyed it <laughs> yeah Soderbergh tried to oh, he bury it he didn't even edit it has to be unfinished just destroy yeah. it <laughs> yeah that's a Kafka biopic <laughs> All right, I think that we've arrived at sort of what this film is. Um, let's break into some of the specific moments, I guess, just oh, Jesus, to sort this of flesh hard. this out. <laughs> well, what do you think of the zombie stuff, right? Just it, like scene for scene, like does that engage you, or you know, just w- what do you make of some of these, or whatever aspect you you find notable? Give me some notable moments. Like to me, the zombie thing is an interesting thing to sort of talk about, you know. This this we'll is start there. this is these are elements from the castle, right? I think so, if I remember correctly. But I didn't to, dig into the castle. Is to, there experimentation on? Human like there's this sort of or? idea of this guy. There's this. There are these people just doing shit to people, and they're just like okay. you don't know because they're all reside in this castle, and there's this sort of this higher power just being. Just, yeah. So because there's <laughs> another piece to Kafka stuff where a lot of people looking back on his 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 writing just sort of you know academics or whatever they say you know this is particularly prescient like he is sort of giving us a glimpse at what you know german society is going to be through the 30s and 40s uh well yeah he's giving us that and he also just recounts what the austrian austro-hungarian society was when he was living in it (laughs) yeah because i suppose um not to put on my historian hat because i'm not a historian i'm not i'm not trained in this i'm just a fan so what I'll say is like the German society of the 30s and 40s was modeled on uh, the the German Empire and to lesser and then Hung- Austro-Hungarian Empire was kind of modeled on a little bit on the, the German Empire as well because they were kind of a bit of a Me Too movement, right? Um, uh, so if you think about like the the, the thir- the 30s and 40s is basically German Empire on steroids and then this reflects the German Empire rather than pre, you know, presages this the rise of the Nazis because like what Hitler was trying to do was he's trying to 
reinvigorate the spirit that he thought was lost in the roaring 20s, right? Mm. Um, or was lost in, as, as a result of the, the, the betrayal at the Versailles and then whatever. Like he had, he had, he had, he had, I suppose he had his reasons, whatever, because, you know, like politically speaking, the World War I wasn't really, um, the, the, no one put a good bow on it, put it that way, right? Mm. So, so there was a lot of people who were, let's just say, left disenfranchised and it just opened up the sort of the field to kind of just populists to come and just point fingers at, at, at immigrants. Right? That's kind of how it happened, right? So <clears throat> but, back, in gen- yeah, but in general, yeah, back no. to Kafka, Kafka was basically just living in at that kind of society because he died in 1924. So he imagined that he grew up in Austrian-Hungarian Empire in, in the sort of the Czech part of it. As in, as in, so it wasn't necessarily a Germanic land. It was a land that was kind of sort of taken over. Because the yeah. bo- bo- Bohemian part of what's now Czech Republic was, well, would have been set, settled partially by Germanic people and partially by Slavic people as well. He was, and he was an Ashkenazi Jew. So he was a, he was a, a Germanic, uh, well, who would be a member of the Jewish diaspora who, who basically just congregated in the Holy Roman Empire, and this is how they kind of just so they they, they I think they invented the Yiddish, right? So, so they were the sort of this sort of quasi-Germanic uh, sort of enclave of Jewish people who are sort of like a minority within. So they were always kind of and anyway they're kind of outsiders anyway. So it feels like you're just like if you i could imagine being being in that sort of environment kind of make make you feel like you're a little bit of an outcast yeah my piece that i was just going <clears> to <throat> roll back to um just in terms of starting with the zombies and my comment about being prescient i was just wondering because i know the nazis would do experiments and you mm-hmm. know experiments you know on on people and whatnot so is this sort of a a, a heritage going back that that Kafka would have heard stories of this type of thing, or is this truly something in this work that might have been a bit prescient? I'm just asking, because I think that just launching off what you said, your recollection of the castle, I didn't do any research on the castle, but does the castle make those sort of allegations Uh, and suggestions? I think think the castle is more of a reflection on, not necessarily on doing experiments, but um, the aspect of living under an authoritarian jackpot of... um, People disappearing and okay. then people being brainwashed into thinking a certain way. Okay. Right. So, and then essentially then infiltrating the society to kind of just make sure that, you know, everyone tells the party line. Right. So that's okay. kind of how, how it spreads by fear. So, but then I think the, the, the aspect of the zombies are basically the, uh, the higher power coming in and, uh, basically brain it's not it's not technically doing experiments but brainwashing the masses into yeah okay into become in into uh removing the individuality of the human right so that mm-hmm. you you speak and think exactly how the party wants you to speak so to me this kind of it's not necessarily just the german it kind of it it's all throughout the 20th century you kind of see it everywhere sure. because you could you yeah. could apply the same filter and then see this as um like the stalinist russia it will work exactly the same just oh yeah and you yeah no okay i hear it yeah and you could make that those those claims about our societies and that you know certain there are certain agents that are working towards that on social yes. media right like you know for for sure yeah yeah yeah. that's that's how i see it so i, I wouldn't see yeah. this more uh like um 
uh, like a verbatim sort of comment on Nazis doing experiments or um, or or like a anticipation of that happening. It's more of a like a metaphor okay. for a higher power, the threat of a higher power changing people's minds and remove and then the fear of removing your own own individuality as a result because they have this sort of bit of brain remove and they're no yeah. longer themselves so yeah. that's the sort of the fear of uh, and the whole idea the that big brother right the whole idea oh my buddy he thinks a little different he's got these weird ideas and then he goes missing <clears throat> exactly yeah. which is which is something that happened in the german empire in right. the austro-hungarian empire in nazi germany and stalinist and bolshevik russia russia it, it's everywhere like that yeah. like you know and you play a game of cards with a bunch of now. friends and yeah. next 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 day your friend raban is disappears like what was happening yeah he disappears because he probably said something he wasn't supposed to and then all of a sudden like you the the franz kafka of, of just thinking well maybe Maybe there is a higher power. Maybe they're doing something to them, and then then you ima- then he imagines this shit, <laughs> that, right? That he goes and infiltrates. In, well, in reality, he was too cowardly to do so anyway. But this is his sort of coping. Maybe this is what's happening, you know? Yeah. Because in reality, his, his friend may have been just snatched by the secret police, tortured to death, and then ditched somewhere by the side of the road or in a mass grave somewhere in the middle of the forest somewhere in rural Bohemia. I don't know. Uh, all right. I'm going to. What a great topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On, on that note, do you see? So this is this has been fun. Like I think we're making connections backwards. Do you see anything that someone might look to this project and um, say, "Oh, what Soderbergh there did was very interesting"? And do you see this as an inspiration for anything else? Just throwing it out there. I thought that'd be a fun well, weird question well, I mean, to ask. Forwards, because for, for me, this is a, you know. Okay, they, they can come in. I don't want to go and lend dubs and whatever, but it, if you look at Orson Welles as the trial, there is a you could see how this pays it off. You could, if you look at Brazil, you, could, if you look at Terry Gilliam, and then mm-hmm. you look, you see how this kind of incorporates these elements and it kind of tells you that Soderbergh kind of loves these elements of he loves cinema and he wants to kind of just make his own like he's like a kid with a camera he wants to make his own versions of movies that he loves right right yeah and then as a result he becomes the sort of i think we talked about it on multiple occasions before right where there is the sort of um you know there's there will be filmmakers who look at the filmmaker who, who look at the filmmaker who looks at the other filmmakers and they just take um they take the Orson Welles as sort of um, inspirations by proxy without necessarily knowing they're taking them. So like Dark City doesn't <clears throat> exist without this movie, right? Um, equally, probably The Matrix doesn't exist in the form that it does without Dark City, this and the trial, right? Because there are aesthetic elements in, in there. And, and also essentially just means that Dark City, The Matrix, Equilibrium, all of this doesn't, don't exist if Kafka burns all this shit. True. Yeah. <laughs> Just Franz Kafka and the real Franz Kafka, if he decides if 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 he decides to actually if his friend actually burns his, <clears throat> his the drawer of his stuff and, and actually listens to him, none of these films exist. George Orwell doesn't exist. I mean probably exists, but probably wouldn't write something else. It kind of feels like that to me. So there's yeah. 
it all kind of trace, traces back to actual Franz Kafka's work and tells you that the work is important. It's just he's not the best material for a biopic. Yeah. <laughs> um, my my one thought on on that question because I like I love love your response actually, but um, I was looking at would anyone be inspired in any way by this specific uh, Steven Soderbergh film, and you know I don't see anyone looking back and say, oh yeah, a film that really inspired me or inspired this move in my career Um, charlie kaufman's probably the closest one i could probably think of yeah maybe that's sort of a good take too the only way that i was thinking about answering that is that um just career wise i think quite possibly um rodriguez might have looked at um he's fallen steven soderbergh he's fallen asleep halfway through the film come on (laughs) what what oh Robert no, Rodriguez. No, and again, this is not, how it's not the Kafka. film. It's not. <laughs> it's not the film. Don't get me wrong. I think he's looking at what Soderbergh did in his career and say, "Look, as as his follow up film, he he doesn't want to make a mistake and get get cornered into a certain uh, genre, or you know, he's only going to be an independent film, or he's only going to be good for this." Because I think that Soderbergh had this blessing. Of, put upon him that he can do whatever he wants right um after sex lies and videotape like i I think that you know the world was his oyster to a certain point um so he chose this so and i think that he chose this because he didn't want to be you know the guy that sort of okay this is what you do now you're doing these little uh edgy little dramas for one two three million dollars and you know that's all you can do I, i think that he wanted to do something entirely different. So I think that Rodriguez is looking at that because El Mariachi was sort of a big, a big deal when it was released in 92 and, you know, a very successful run on uh, the festival circuits and Rodriguez, his next three or four projects were all released in a very sort of condensed time period. So he didn't want to be pegged a certain way. He didn't want to suffer from the sophomore jinx. And I wonder if he said, okay, well, uh, Soderbergh was very strategic about what he did second and Rodriguez said my choice to do a second movie so I don't sort of get you know sort of penciled into same, a certain but... slot is yeah but what he did was he he really he had Road Racers Desperado mm-hmm. um, uh, From Dust Till Dawn and Four Rooms all sort of released I, I think within a, a year I'm going to say so anyway, yeah. that's the only thought I had is that well, maybe as sort of a career move, Rodriguez might say, hmm, I want to be very strategic about what I do next. And uh, Soderbergh did that. He was very particular about what he wanted to do. I mean, I don't anyway. want to be a fly on the wall in, in a conversation where Soderbergh was, I don't know, speaking to someone about actually having an idea for a second film. Like, what, do I, what are you going to do next? And he would actually to truthfully answer without the sort of, the camera being there, as we said before, it was just like modifying these answers, right? Um, because you say it's, he's being strategic, and then I'm thinking, what if his film IQ is big enough to know that okay, this is this may be my only chance to do something really wicked? Because hmm. I couldn't do this as my first film because I wouldn't be able to make a second film. But I can get away with making something really stupid, <laughs> so I can just go off the wall. Because what's the be- what's the worst that could happen? I'll go- I'm going to lose some money. The studio's going to lose some money. And who cares? I'm going to make another sex lies in videotapes for half a million dollars that I have stashed in the bank. 
So, you know, I can, I, I can, I can make this happen. I can, you know, so I can, I can do one film that's a little bit more experimental and then I can come back and do something a bit more predictable and people will love it. But then later yeah, on, feel, the film feels will more exist. of a Cohen's thing. But the film will, will yeah. exist, right? And then, yeah. so, you know, like maybe someone's going to like it. Maybe they won't. I don't know. But at least I'll have, like, how, how else am I going to make a Franz Kafka biopic? Like, who else is going to do this? Like, no one's going to produce this script. <laughs> Maybe. I'm just wondering whether <laughs> this is something like that or where he's, you know, where he just says to himself, like, at least I get to go to Prague and then just go to make a film in Europe. Maybe that's the allure. He's like, no, I'm going to make Maybe. a film And in his Europe. next couple are there too, right? I think, like, uh, is King of the Hill in, in, oh, I don't, in Europe? I don't know. I haven't seen yeah, King of the sure. Hill. So a, a lot of these no, films I have been new experiences yeah. for me. Yeah. <laughs> and I may be wrong in, in saying that. Um. I'm starting to run out of topics here, but I do want to talk about performances. What do you sure. think of the performances in this? So front and center is Jeremy Irons playing a guy named Kafka. <laughs> what What are your thoughts on, I mean, on Mr. Irons? I'll be perfectly honest. It was hard for me to kind of just clue into a, and much of anything. So Jeremy Irons, like you point point a camera at him, something's going to come out because he's just a genuinely great actor. Equally, I think Alec Guinness is in this film and I was just thinking to myself, where is he? Because he doesn't really jump off the page. I think he's the boss, right? He's the boss in the yeah. office, yeah. He's the, he's the boss in the office. And then there are these, there are these goons in there, which and again, like there's a lot of characters that just come in and out. Like there's goons who... I don't know, manhandle Kafka and, and then he f- gets oh, yeah. rescued by the guy who then lets him in the castle, right? I think that's how it happens. Uh, so performance-wise, only Jeremy Irons is the, on- the only person I could put, maybe the detective, and he's going to make an appearance later on. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, but, I agree. Yeah, I think Jeremy I, Irons, he's the only one that matters. Yeah, um, and then he's all right. I mean, he's Jeremy Irons, so it's kind of like, okay. I don't My have much to on, say about him. So when I was watching this, and after I did a little bit of uh, research on Franz Kafka, and if this is in fact is supposed to be sort of a documentary, learn about Kafka, learn about his ideas, learn about how his life led to his ideas. If that's what we're in for here, I wonder if Jeremy Irons is a little bit too confident and virile in here. Like, you know, he's a guy who commands your attention and he has a presence. And I just wonder in a way, if that's going a little bit against the idea, like he's great. I love watching Jeremy Irons. Like he is, he's, he's the man like, (laughs) or is it against the idea? Or is this again, Soderbergh being the Orson Welles of his time, he's a genius. (laughs) And he casts Jeremy Irons because he's a guy who's, who's an alpha male who has to just be stunted by his insecurities and these insecurities are completely manufactured by his by by his mind because oh he's and and or maybe this is just as simple if you look at any picture of franz kafka he kind of looks like jeremy he does yeah (laughs) he's a little you know and it's a very small beef um but you know like the, the the franz kafka that i'm learning about is sort of this you know weak sheepish type of guy and i'm watching jeremy irons and jeremy irons you know and we do get this softer, meeker side of him because we get it in the letters that he's writing to his dad at, at uh, the end and at one other point as well. And um, 
we're getting it. I think we, there's this nice moment where he gives a sheepish look at it towards the end where I think it's clear that uh, Yaron Crabbe's character, character Beezlebeck or something, he seems to be wooing the girl that he used to be interested in or whatever. Like, And he's coughing at the end. You know, I think that's alluding to his tuberculosis and his, his end. Um, so Jeremy Irons is doing these things, but basically moment for moment, like he's sort of a virile leading man. I just wondered if there's a slight contradiction in there. But this, although I this, guess... Oh, is this again if you get Jeremy Irons nod then... to Anthony Perkins? Because Anthony Perkins is essentially 1960s Jimmy Stewart. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he actually speaks exactly like Jimmy Stewart. He has this sh- sh- thing about his speech. Yeah. <laughs> He's like... <laughs> the transatlantic... Like, imagine Sean Connery without the Scottish accent this is essentially jimmy stewart meets anthony perkins <laughs> i'm just thinking is this it like is this just he just casts a leading man because he really wants to make the trial and then that would be jeremy irons is the uh anthony perkins he can afford <laughs> yeah maybe or you know i think if if you're going to make an independent film in europe and you have a chance to get Jeremy oh, Irons as that. your leading man, <laughs> you know, yeah. and Jeremy Irons at this point, I believe they would be shooting this right after he won his Academy Award. If they're shooting in 1990, I think that's when, Probably. I think. It must have been it, shooting, because like it came out in 1991 and 1989, he was making Sex, Lies and Videotapes, so. Yeah, so, and I'm pretty sure Reversal of Fortune, which was Irons' Oscars, 1990, pretty sure, so. You know, why wouldn't you? You know, you've got Jeremy Irons. Yeah, why wouldn't you? 1991. <laughs> so it will be for 1990, I suppose. What's that, his Oscar? His Oscar, yeah. Yes. I'm pretty sure Reversal Fortune came out in 1990. But yes, he would have. Yeah, 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 yeah. It came out of, in 1990. Yeah, so, yeah, because yeah. Oscars are kind of just weirdly like 2020, 2023 Oscars will be for, for, you know, for last year. Right. Weird. Uh, yeah, anyway, that was just sort of a, a point I sort of wondered about. But um, and I think it's an entirely European cast, I'm going to say, except maybe Joel Grey. Whoa, Kafka, I mean. Yeah. Uh, I think so. I think uh, so. Joel Grey may be the exception. Because I think he's American. Well, let me, let me quickly check. I mean, just... Hmm. Where is... Jeremy Irons, Teresa Russell. She's American. Okay. Uh, yeah, oh, Ian Holmes, British. Uh, mm-hmm. Joel Gray, yeah. I know it's his daughter in Dirty Dancing. That's why I presume he's American. Crabber. Um, yeah, Armin Miller. Oh. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, Do you have something you want to say about Armin Miller stuff? No, it's just. <laughs> I mean, he's on my bottom list. As I just like, he's just always on. I don't get it. <laughs> okay. He's you essentially the anti- like if he's supposed to be the sort of the Kafka esque sort of detective. There is no paranoia. Like, I think, or is paranoia? Is the par- oh again? Is this the genius? Am I defending this movie? I don't know. Is the paranoia in Kafka's head? And then he just thinks maybe he's onto me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know, and he just lives this fantasy on pay on, on the on paper later on how he th- he hopes one day someone's gonna go and take him uh from his house 
I don't know. It's yeah. I don't think I have much more to say. Okay. Apart from the fact that it's kind of like a dry run from Dark City. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of an interesting. <laughs> that's an interesting take, especially with the uh, ending. We didn't really talk, yeah. talk about much, much of the and ending. Really, you know we? what? You're reading my mind. I have sort of one other topic that I want to sort of talk, and it's the ending. And specifically, I want to talk happens? about the, the the color versus BW, <laughs> the B and W. You know, and you know what is going on if you have any insight there. But I, I don't have we, any insight. Yeah, okay. I just feel like this is just complete Terry Gilliam territory of. I don't know, like there's weird shit happening. Uh, and all these bosses are in on this. And then the visuals are supposed to just be kind of very creepy in 50s, I suppose. And that, that's it. I, or maybe this is just him just really tipping the hat to Terry Gilliam. Because as you said, like he loved Brazil. <laughs> yeah, that's so, yeah. sort of my take as well. It is a little bit of maybe a, a you know, love of Brazil. But also what I will say about the ending is this this is the moment when I get quite engaged when he's, you know, goes into the the tomb and the tomb is a tunnel and he's walking up these corridors and he comes through this filing cabinet into this weird room. And then he, you know, goes through and all the rooms are weird. Like you've, it's just, it's a very inventive space. It's a very uh, inventive set design that, that we have here. And I really appreciate it. And, and, He's got, a, he's got a bomb with him. And like, I'm somewhat engaged here. It's like, what's going on here? Like the, the set design is, is different <clears throat> from what we've been seeing so far. This, the whole business of it turning to color. And then you've got the eyeball projected onto this, you know, glass ceiling slash floor. It's, uh, it's interesting. Do you um, think the, um, uh, <clears throat> the imagery is the uh, Clockwork Orange inspired? As in, like, do you think um, sort of Stanley Kubrick had something to say? Hmm. I mean, or is this Soderbergh homaging Stanley Kubrick with this sort of apparatus of these sort of eyes? That's really interesting um, because there was a shot that, again, going to the audio commentary for Sex, Lies, and Videotape that he was calling his Kubrick shot because there's one shot of the camera and he kept calling it his Hal shot. Right, where it's just sort of a close-up of the the camera and sex lies and videotape. So it may very well be in what we're talking about right here in this moment. It may very well be a reference to to Kubrick. That makes quite a bit of sense, actually, and in a way, um, yeah, I, I took it as just sort of this extension of you know maybe appreciating Kafka's work and appreciating uh, you know Gilliam and Brazil <clears throat> and bringing the heightening this moment bringing it into the climax you know like this is this is where the these visual elements should be because you know there's not a climax in any other way and we have to sort of bring this to a close so let's simulate sort of a rising action i guess and let's do it visually that that's sort of how i took it mm -hmm. um you know and it's a continuation of you know some of these other kafka-esque ideas i i suppose but um but yeah, like I will say, this this is a part that I'll even say I'll venture a guess that this is a part that I was awake for and alert for back when I saw this in 1992. Because uh, you kind of just just sit up a little bit and it's like it's in color. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's in color and he's he's got a suitcase bomb and you know like these weird rooms and the the glasses creaking at one point and there's a guy polishing in that weird hovering it's seat. Like, I'm new that, here hanging seat yeah so you know the the visuals stand out it's uh sort of eye-popping in its own way like you know it's another 
it's another example, I think, which corroborates that Soderbergh knows what he's doing and he's a fantastic director. So again, like this is a director who wouldn't even be 30 that is, you know, channeling these ideas and putting these images um, before us. Like it, it's, it's impressive stuff. It just, I, I guess, yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. Right. So <laughs> be my concern with it. <laughs> I suppose this again, like this is me defending a film that I really don't feel any particular way about. I feel this is the genius of Steven, young Steven Soderbergh, the Orson Welles of his time, where <laughs> where he turns this into color on purpose. There is there is a, there is a reason why this movie turns into color in this in this particular moment because I think we're in, eventually essentially just turning in, entering Franz Kafka's imagination. None of this ever happens. Like this is all I... a psychosis episode. Like he just goes into a tunnel and he has a you know ayahuasca ceremony or something. You know he just he just has a moment, right? I agree. I think though, <clears throat> I think that there are probably other elements that are happening in his mind. So I, I find it a little weird that it's only color here. You know, maybe this is the only part that's in his imagination, and that is my takeaway. But I feel like the business of you know, seeing the zombies and the sensationalized moment of the sort of the elevator escape, like that's sort of a heightened moment as well. I feel that stuff like that is probably in his imagination as well, because you said it, Kafka, the man, and if that's who Jeremy Irons is playing, is not an interesting guy. So these are things that are happening to other people or they're happening in his mind. They're not happening to uh, Kafka. So why why wouldn't that moment be in color? It's, it's, it's sort of weird in that sense. I like I had the feeling that different points in here were either a dream or imagination. I have a theory on this. I mean, it's not a very well fleshed out theory, but just to, in response, I would say the reason why certain things, this particular sequence is in color versus things that precede it are not, is the difference is in this say when when he's chased by a zombie in the lift or in his office or where where he's uh he goes into the hideout of the spies and they're all murdered and, mm -hmm. and so or when he's manhandled by these goons whatever st stuff is happening to him plot is happening to him he just responds he has these sort of fight or flight responses like you know there's a bomb that just uh, take, takes off somewhere yeah. Meanwhile, this is the only time in this whole goddamn story, 98 minutes long, right, where he's taking initiative. He's actually, he's like Andy McDowell in Sex, Lies, and Video. It's just, he, he just opens up. He's no longer clammed up. He's not, he's not you know, uh, responding to stimuli. He's taking charge. He's taking control. He, he has the bomb. He goes and investigates. He actually has to respond to someone challenging his identity as well. Who the hell are you? It's like, oh, I'm new here. Right? He has, like, the timid Franz Kafka in black and white would just run away. Meanwhile, mm. he finds out what he, he knows what, how to respond so that he keeps his cover and he just continues investigating because he has to find out what's happening behind his closed door, beca be, behind these sort of like these foggy windows where people are probably tortured, right? There are these sort of scenes in the, like the very Gilliam-esque, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's essentially just, I don't know, the, Lub the Lubyanka prison in, in Moscow where shit's just happening to people we don't even want to think about. Like when these people are just being tortured and lobotomized or whatever the hell. Come to think of it, it's kind of like an homage to one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But, but this is, this is also on this to add to this, because I like it. Um, this is the moment where Kafka is sort of 
he's saying, no, this is what the threat is. This is what the castle is, where everything else is in doubt. It's just this sort of nameless authority, you know, oh, who knows what's happening? I'm not sure. Like everything is sort of in sort of the shadow of doubt, so to speak. But here, nope, they're actually doing tests on people and they're actually doing evil things. And um, it's it's more crystallized. It's almost, almost as if his ideas are crystallizing for him. I suppose, like, I like on, yeah, on like if you think of like if if Soderbergs and, and Dobbs are kind of um, in investing themselves in what Kafka would do as a as a as a storyteller, right? You you think he'd probably perk up at these moments where the characters are taking control. It's like, no, I'm not gonna, you know, proceed with the process. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna hold the camera now. Like he's, so you could say that this is where. Okay, well, things now take shape. They have color. They they have depth, uh, and I think this is an interesting vi- vi- visualization of mm-hmm. that sort of idea. In in a way, I kind of want to use another bingo item. It, the movie becomes a film about storytelling. It's about cinema. <laughs> <laughs> See, we needed Niccolo in the room. <laughs> this is about filmmaking. Well, you know, good take. It's, right. <laughs> it's slightly tongue in cheek, but you know, <laughs> I just feel like there's this sort of it's idea. It's not of, crazy like, either. The sort of this, this sort of storytelling being this, the, a, such an escape from the from the mundanity of the outside world. So much so that once you in, inhabit the world of your imagination, that shit starts turning to color. You know. This is the Wizard of. I wonder if this is this is my Wizard of Oz moment. Like then, just you know, like my life is so brown that you know, like one day I just get hit hit over in the head, and everything's Technicolor now. It's just the best. Brown but Technicolor. <laughs> brown but Technicolor. Yeah. So, you know, it's like maybe. I wonder if he just goes and like I want a Wizard of Oz moment in this film. That's uh, probably more so what it is. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel about the ending, even though it's a bit weird and I don't necessarily understand what's happening. And not that I actually particularly care either, because none of these characters really matter to me very well. Yeah, agree. Yeah. I don't have too much that. I think that, you know, in terms of making sense of this in a meaningful fashion, I think you've come as close as anyone has in 30 <laughs> years. <laughs> and it makes me makes me wonder what Soderbergh saw as his as his flaws. Um in this film and what he wanted to amend. Like, I think that he had issues with the, the narrative and how it was hard to follow. And like the things we're grumbling about, I think that's what he was trying to fix. And there's something that he's done with Mr. Knaff that uh, involves seeing this movie through the eyes of a passionate fan slash critic. So I, I don't even know what that means. Did he film himself watching it? I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I I don't know. But there is a video. I didn't have time to watch it. There's like a half hour video of his Q&A um, at TIFF. And if you can find that, um, probably easy enough to Google Mr. Kneff and Soderbergh and TIFF and you'll find it. And it's I didn't have a chance to watch it, but I wonder if, <laughs> if, wonder if he discusses what his issues were with it. At any rate... We didn't watch Mr. Knaff. I don't really have anything else on my radar. Is there anything else on yours? No, I think I'm good. Yeah. All right. Um, Final thoughts. 
Any final revelations? Tell me now that we've talked through this and you've made it made sense with the color ending uh, um, that it's a masterpiece. No, it's not a masterpiece. It. It's a film that I can, you know, I, I can defend on like a them sort of like a meta textual level, you know, as in the film itself is so boring to watch, but the uh, conversations it engenders are are just interesting to have, if you know what I mean. So in a way, it's kind of like Inland Empire. Like I'm in on on one hand, I'm I was pissed that I had to spend three hours watching this pile of crap, but then I just watching it for three hours enabled me to have another three hours worth of a conversation uh, about it and then just unlock certain things about the film, the filmmaker, and I don't know, life in general, and the universe and everything, right? Just butcher Douglas Adams. But but I'll say this. The film is boring. It's, as as a work of fiction, is completely non-committal to anything. But in that, you could say it's ingenious because you could probably say that this is exactly what Franz Kafka would have wanted. <laughs> so, so yeah. this is how we this is how we make a successful biopic of a boring man who had commitment issues. Just making a, a boring film with with commitment issues. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there is that, uh, and then that kind of harks back to. I want to say at least two uh, two thirds of his of, of his literary work that's longer than three pages, uh, so you know, job done. And at the same time, it's a it's a European film, uh, so again, it kind of looks like it's another sort of the bucket list for Steve Soderbergh because he he got to be like Orson Welles for half a second, and you know, and equally, just just the visuals alone of using high contrast black and white photography on the streets of Prague and at night with the artificial lighting of sodium lamps or whatever the hell they're using. I think they're still using sodium lamps in there. It just looks great and looks like a exactly like a 1960s Orson Welles film. So, you know, there's that. Two and a half out of five. <laughs> uh, well, well said. Yeah, sort of an echo chamber here. I'll just, for my final thoughts, I'll go back to my original thoughts and what I've said throughout, I think that you sort of need the Coles notes version of this. You need the Wikipedia page and it's sort of unfortunate. Um, but if you know a little bit about Franz Kafka's Kafka's life, then there is an appreciation you can have for what's happening here. Um, what, yeah, we're getting a book report, you know, we're getting, um, a beautiful looking film. Uh, I, I think you're right. I think that Soderbergh is saying, Oh, I want to make this look a certain way. And I want to sort of, have fun with old style filmmaking and, you know, things like third man and, you know, Orson Welles, the trial, you know, I want to do stuff like that. And he's doing that. And the film is gorgeous and he's, you know, working with good actors. So he's checking all kinds of things off of his list. And at the end of the day, he's making a film that is just sort of about Kafka and his work and the ideas that led to his work. Um, But it's its own form. It's its own, it's its own unique bit of film business that, you know, I can't think of another film like it, really. It's got no oh. narrative. It's 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 a documentary, but it doesn't look like a documentary. It's um, it's tough to get through as as well. And I think I'm with you. You know, this is a gorgeous looking film. All kinds of great discussion coming out of it. Two and a half out of five. <laughs> well a, said. On the yeah. book report, I have to say, it's kind of like if someone wrote a book report about this, <laughs> And then let someone else read this book report and then write an interpretative dance routine about it. 
and this is yeah. what you're watching. <laughs> as long as the ideas are in there, great. It's just a- the part of array is really the, what the trial encompasses in there. You know, <laughs> it's the jazz hands are really taking. <laughs> like you have to uh, really dig for this. Like you can't really go mm-hmm. and watch this film and say, like you wouldn't. Like if 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 your kids decided to say, I need to write a book report about Kafka. But can, why don't you watch the Soderbergh film? Like you're gonna learn everything there is to know about Kafka from the film. <laughs> it's, it's, this is just evil, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it doesn't really function like a like a straight up book report. It's just it's a book report written by the sort of like overachieving Taipei student who really needs to write a song about something every single time he gets an uh, an opportunity to do a creative project. Yeah. Okay, fair. I'll, I'll replace book report because I do more so have the idea of. Uh, my wife's projects that she assigns but you had to go to wikipedia and read it yourself like you couldn't you're you're like i totally i totally got it you got to and keep in mind i think that i think that this film is for (laughs) yeah this film is for soderbergh and it is for uh literary academics who have an appreciation for kafka and uh all else enter at your own risk okay Looking Tops. forward to the day when this is really some criterion. <laughs> oh, we're, probably we're, will be we're with the to... Mister Kneff or whatever, right? Yeah, like that. Of... That my understanding is that there's a box set of seven uh, Soderbergh films that's supposed to be released, and I don't know what the seven are. It was supposed to be released in 2021, and uh, Mister Kneff was, oh, was really? supposed to be included in that. I was reading that somewhere, but it, that is yet to uh, happen. So please who, tell who me knows? these are just sort of. Uh, and I don't know if it's Criterion. It was just I don't know the distributor. No, that's oh, that's that's just something that already exists anyway. So yeah, we, oh, hold on, R slash Criterion on Reddit. Hold on. Seven titles are Kafka's Gitsopolis, okay. Full Frontal, Bubble, Grey's Anatomy, The Girlfriend Experience, and Everything is Going Fine. <laughs> wow. So, all the all the big wow. hitters. <laughs> <laughs> these uh these are like the 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 I don't want to say low end, but these are these are his uh small budget and ultra independent. I'll say that. They're there's yeah. ultra independent efforts. I've seen only one of them, the girlfriend experience, and I really liked it. But you know. List them again. Eros, Full Frontal, The Bubble. Kafka, Schizopolis, Full Frontal, Bubble, Grey's Anatomy, The Girlfriend Experience, and everything is going fine. I I think I saw Schizopolis back in the 90s, but I forget it. Yeah, this is going to be a journey. Yeah, <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> All right, uh, top lists. Okay. Let's do it. Okay, in the spirit of trying to be succinct, with, you know, we're just about touching on two hours, aren't we? Hopefully yeah. under two. Come on. <laughs> uh, okay. In the spirit of trying to be succinct, get three. So, number one, the lift chase, where the zombie chases Jeremy Irons, Kafka, into the lift and he has to escape. It's just a great sort of sequence. Um, and then, okay, well, in the castle, the whole, the, the eyeball imagery slash the there's this there's one particular shot and it's just one frame where it kind of looks like a 1950s science fiction film where this big sort of 
I don't know what it is. This of the thing where they used to they used to lobotomize these people. There's this of mm-hmm. the big cone shaped sort of expressionists sort of yeah device that kind of looks like it's straight out of uh, like Fritz Lang from from the twenties. It's just great. Uh, and the third one is the moment this movie turns into color. This is the the, the very moment and just the, the five seconds it takes you to realize, oh, it's in color. And then nothing happens in this because it's just a corridor. And then there's this there's this sort of prisoner who just, you know, they, these people are just manhandling and they're asking Jeremy Irons to pick up his papers. Uh, so, yeah, that the moment when this movie turns into color is, is a very important sort of... Uh, almost just a single shot it's just great anyway it's me all right um i have a couple honorable mentions but they're pretty closely tied sort of like i did with the uh, sex lies and videotape the twin assistants that end up working <laughs> for jeremy irons they hold two honorable mentions for me the first is their first day at work they sit down and what they instantly do they have desks facing one another typewriters that are back to back facing one another and these these two twin assistants they're they're facing one another they look at one another and then they they have a space bar race on a typewriter <laughs> with one another and to see whoever gets to the ding at the end of the line just by hitting the space bar repetitively that is honestly comic gold i thought that was just fantastic and then the other sort of quirky moment that i was really grooving with with the twins was again with the typewriters one of them feeds the typewriter uh with paper and then crank 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 the paper wraps around and it folds over into the input of the other typewriter so the uh the twin steals his paper by wrapping his crank uh cranking his typewriter and he feeds the paper i thought that was just sort of bizarre and weird and this is his ernst lubitsch moment lo- <laughs> lovely comic. what is it this is his ernst lubitsch moment <laughs> i don't know that reference oh it's just like a german comedic director from the uh, 20s okay. right okay yeah <clears throat> and that's what it feels like too like it feels like uh you know uh, Mr. Bean or uh, Jacques Tati, like there's just this old style, physical, uh, fun mm-hmm. comedy. It was great. <laughs> All right, my my actual three. So um, to get it out of the way, uh, the elevator attack scene, the rabid man breaking into the office. That's great. You mentioned that. Uh, number two, just the visuals involved with the Hall of Records set. It's just absolutely gorgeous production design and black and white. Um, just everything about that just looks great. So this is where Jeremy Irons is going through just these huge um, shelves filled with papers and files. And it's it's really great stuff. And that's then, a trial homage, by the way. That's 1960. Yes. The trial. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. Like, and the trial has, you know, different moments like that, that I remember just gorgeous production design. And, you know, that's throughout here as well. But the, the Hall of Records really stood out to me. Um, and in the color scene, I really like the moment where they're walking across the glass dome and you've got the projection of the eyeball under their feet is just great. Like to me, that's just a great, uh, great moment in its weirdness and its color and even the suspense, like you get the creaking sound of the glass just all together. Great. Bottoms. This is going to be hard because believe it or not, it was difficult for me to remember three moments. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, 
so, uh, sort of same here. <clears throat> so, okay. One is, I think it's Alec Guinness. When he's helplessly hanging on a conveyor belt. And he's just like, ah, help me, help me. Just want fucking cop out. Or that's Ian Holm. Is it Ian Holm? Is it Ian Holm? Okay. I think so. See, there you go. And the detective I mentioned him, just as a whole. I just don't like it, this character. I don't know why, but he's like he's not threatening, he's not paranoid, he's not he's a nothing character. I don't I don't get it. But then again, this may have been on purpose. I don't know. Because it's all in his head. And then the bottom of the bottom is the typing challenge. Like why is it that <laughs> Oh no <laughs> I get all these sort of these nuances of like, well, five o'clock and everyone fucks off on command because that's again in the Orson Welles' trial. It's a great scene because there's like 150 extras just leaving their desks yeah. on command. <laughs> I'm just like, no, no, quiet quitting. No one's staying over time. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's great world building too, right? This, these are the rules. You're here till five, five o'clock, leave. There you go. Yeah. But these guys yeah. were just with their sleeves and then just why is it oh you're getting two assistants and these two just knobheads just shot like it's just a weird sort of beat of comedy that's just out of nowhere in an otherwise completely uncomedic film so it's just it feels like out of place it's like you know it's like it's like a Jacques Tati moment exactly it's just a moment and then I'm just wondering it doesn't cohere with anything else so it just feels like okay I have to single it out I'm sorry yep you're right. They were still a, a beacon of joy for me, those two clowns. <laughs> Almost everything they did, I thought was great. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. That's them? Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I had some difficulty with this as well. So the I'll typing challenge. With... <laughs> no, no. That was Again. Beacon of joy. Uh, I'll say this. Joel Gray, the scene where he goes to the bathroom stall to look up pornographic photos like he's got this envelope and he's got these nude photos in there mm. iron spies on him like goes nowhere does nothing so that was you know i, I guess there's all kinds of scenes like that but this can sort I, of can i answer stood out weirdly scene? can i add something to, to it yeah yeah because yeah. then jamie irons well first of all it's a spring-loaded toilet seat who does that oh. <laughs> so it's just it just stands up it's a very male-dominated workplace right because yeah. it's just the toilet seat stands up, <laughs> but then he he stands on the toilet seat. He in, he loads the spring and just this goes nowhere again. But then what he does later on, he just has his trousers on. He has his like he doesn't you know. He sits on the toilet. Like it's gonna be, it's it's like you know James Spader just going for, to the bathroom for no good reason. Right? It's just it's I, I don't know. I just like no. Toilet seat and bare ass belong together. Not no, you don't you don't sit down on the toilet seat fully clothed because there there may be stains. Okay, this is not good. I should I should yeah, it's my a dishonorable. Update mention. your list. Okay, there you go. Um, <laughs> totally forgot about this spring loaded toilet seat. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it's in my notes. It's just I can't really decipher. <laughs> so, yeah, I was really reaching here. Like I so I just I have a note here on a narrative level. Just the darkness of the idea of social experimentation on people and making monsters. Like, is this a reference to what the Nazis would do? 
is this supposed to suggest that Kafka's, Kafka's work was prescient or a warning? It doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere to, for me. It doesn't, I don't, I don't know, or maybe it doesn't go anywhere that I get. So it, it just seemed off, even though it created the mm -hmm. zombies, I suppose. So there's just an element there. Where are we going with this, you know, darkness and, you know, zombie stuff. And there's just something with that that didn't really jive in a way. Um, you know, and that could be said about so many, so many things in here. Um, and my number one, and I really, I hate that I'm so vague on this list, but anyway, the lack of a narrative hook that's connected to the protagonist, like the idea that this is its own form. This is Soderbergh and Dobbs creating a story that is sort of about the man, but more of about his ideas. And it's got references to his different works and, that there's a narrative in it, but the narrative isn't really important. The fact that it, the way that it's its own form, I think makes it impossible to latch on to and enjoy. So the lack of a narrative hook. That's the genius of the film. Then <laughs> two and a half out of five. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just like, that's the genius of the film. It's exactly has to go straight down the middle of the road. Don't commit to anything. Great, Steve. Two and a half out it's, of five. It's great brilliant. job. I'm it's going to my my rating is meta, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> two and a half out of five. Uh, so yeah, that's it. All right, that's it for us. We made it uh, to the end. Jesus, that was uh, hard, actually. It it was, but we did well to get a couple hours out of it. Um, Kafka the film can't get it anywhere, so don't worry too much about it, folks. Um, Mr. Kneff, this is the 2021 uh, allegedly new and improved uh, Kafka with uh, Soderbergh's stamp of improvement. It was apparently, as we mentioned, promised as part of a seven film box set of Soderbergh films. All the bangers. Can't get it anywhere yet either. We don't, I don't think it's been released. So anyway, uh, that's that. So don't, don't put too much effort or thought into this film uh, or what we said about it. Jakob, where can our friends find you? Oh, they can find me infiltrate, infiltrating a castle in Technicolor. Uh, you know. Uh, no, I, I'll talk about film on Twitter. Jakob Flash Letterboxd, fashionfilm.com, clapper.td.co.uk is where you can find my shizzle as well. So, that's me. And you can find me on Twitter at Randy Burroughs. You can find me on Letterboxd at Bratch7. You can find uh, some of the stuff I write when I write, and hopefully I get back into that vein on clapperltd.co.uk. Um, you can find little things and posts that I make on the Facebook group. It's a public group, Island Film Geeks. Um, and I encourage everyone out there to uh, check out our other shows. Drop by our online headquarters, uncutgemspodcast.com, uh, where you'll find all of our stuff. There's two years of episodes uh, in there now. Um, a lot of emotional content. Uh, so look for what we're getting into this January with our Soderbergh Shallow Dive. Um, in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is on our Patreon right now. Um, and a reminder, too, that if you sign up to become a Patreon member during this month, um, we have a promo going on that we will send you an Uncut Gems mug. Next month, Soderbergh-wise, our deep dive on the main show will cover uh, two, The Underneath and Schizopolis, and that will be released the first Friday of February and our shallow dive into Soderbergh Gems. That's going to be on Patreon with 
the king of the hill king of the hill no the um all right so tune in to our patreon as well for our tie into space westerns which is high noon and also we will be starting our john cassavetti's marathon later this month with our discussion on shadows uh next week we'll get started in earnest with our westerns in space series we'll be talking about peter hyams 1981 film outland starring sean connery and peter boyle that's it for now have a great day everyone see you next week